0: Praise be to God as we have his word. Every Sunday we open it and we're reminded of the truth, of the promise, of who he said he is and who he said we are in him. And as we open the word and dive into this chapter, chapter six, it's super helpful. And continually as we dive in, we're reminded of. Some of us have been exposed to some of these ideas before. Some have never been exposed to the idea uh, that we were slaves to sin. And so this word slave maybe stirs up some connotation of, now here's the church going into some political areas again. Just hang on. If you are here a couple weeks ago, we framed it culturally and historically in in a healthy way. And then we see Romans 6:23 for the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's the summary. It's the reader's digest. It's the spark notes for those of you that are, know what spark notes is. But it, we lose so much of the weight. We lose so much of the intentional just depth that Paul goes into and really when you think about it, maybe you woke up today and you're like I'm healthy. Or maybe you woke up today and you had a little cough or something was a little off, and man, I'm, I'm not healthy. And there's that joke, right? When when, when men um, get a cold, it's like the whole world stops, you know? And and then women have a cold and they still do everything fine. It's It's no more extreme than in our household where my wife has migraines and she's sick and she does everything still to the nine, everything's under control. And then I get a cold and I'm down for a week. And it's like, are you really? I'm like, yeah, I had like one drop of, You know, something here and my my ear kind of hurt. I'm down. Like, don't talk to me. Don't touch me. So the question is are you healthy? Are you healthy today? How are we doing? Spiritually, how are we doing? It's interesting as as we sign up to be foster parents, we said, hey, kind of two and under. And as I looked at our health, physically, spiritually, doing some research, realizing Paul's not just talking about positionally, are you good, but are you growing? And you know, healthy things, they don't die. They actually do the opposite, they're growing. So when we talk about how are we doing, are we healthy? Usually it's in, are we growing? Are we getting stronger? Are we more disciplined or are we unhealthy? Are we kind of needing some extra care and and medicine to kind of fight something off? And it's interesting that the World Health Organization says stunting in early life, stunted growth, particularly in the first thousand days from conception until age two, Impaired growth has adverse adverse functional consequences on kids. Some of those consequences include poor cognition, educational performance, low adult wages, loss of productivity, and accompanied by excessive weight gain later in childhood, increased risk of nutrition-related chronic diseases in adult life. So those first thousand years to two years, if there's stunted growth, you're going to be plagued with problems your entire life. It's no wonder when you look at the church and see it anemic, and, and you see people that are, oh yeah, I, I went to, you know, I went to Sunday school, I went to youth group, but I didn't really grow. Maybe some of you are starting to feel a little convicted. You're like I came for a little TED talk. That's not what the Bible is, or we do here. We bring truth, and we focus on Christ. And the reality is, so much of of my journey, I can relate with you if you're feeling that way. As a kid, growing up in church, and. Growing up in youth group, I was the kid. Every time they'd say, hey, you're in sin. Like, yes. You need Jesus to forgive you. Yes. Okay, everyone, close your eyes, bow your heads. I'm like, yes, again, for the thousandth time. Okay, everyone go, you know, winter camps, Hume Lake, retreats, youth group nights, guest speaker, everyone leave, everyone that wants to repent and be forgiven, stay. I was staying every time. Senior year in high school, for the 10th billionth time, my youth leader's like, Brandon, seriously? You're good, okay? You're forgiven. Now go help everyone in the cabin figure it out. And I'm like, but I'm not good. Like my heart still tells me I did the thing I don't want to do yesterday. I'm still, I need forgiveness. I need to be positionally good. The problem was I had stunted growth. No one taught me how to, how to, how to love people. And then finally they got frustrated with me. And they're like, why aren't you growing? Like, I don't know how. You just told me I needed God to love me. And now what? And here Paul dives deep into the positionally you're good, now progressively you're growing. Because you're good, you get to grow in that goodness. Because you have Christ's righteousness, his robe of righteousness around you, you're warm. Which finally for us Californians, we got to feel a little shiver today. It's like, oh wow, that's what it feels like. A balming 42 degrees maybe, you know, and you're like, oh my goodness, I might not survive. It's okay. It's okay. The sun's coming out, give it an hour, we'll be back up to 90 the rest of the week. We'll be okay, we'll survive. But the warmth of his righteousness, that's the only way we're in Christ. That's the only way we get in his mercy, his grace, and it's not our works, it's what he's done. If we fail, allow grace to have its full work. If we fail to get in God's word and understand who we are in Christ, understand God's work on our behalf, will end up as stunted Christians. We'll end up just barely saved, but not growing and not serving. Paul here explains in depth and in great detail what he talks about elsewhere, and especially in Colossians 3, it's more succinct and, 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 and clear, but here in its full effect, Romans 6 through through 8, chapter 6 through 8, is we're going to look at in the coming weeks. And it's this section that that talks about And asks this question he poses twice. First in verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Maybe you've been there before. Like, sweet, I'm freely forgiven. So I can freely keep sinning and then he'll just keep freely forgiving. And it's this awesome cycle. In verse 15 again he says, what then are we to sin? Because we're not under law but under grace. The question arises from Paul's teaching about the gospel. In chapters 1 through 5, the gospel has a theme that's unique to all other world religions or philosophies that would say you have to do good in order to become good or to be rewarded with that. But really, salvation is received on Christ's goodness, on his perfect obedience, not achieved. That's the bottom line is you're, you're, you're received as you are, but God's love doesn't leave you that way. He transforms you it's not achieved. It's received on the basis of what Christ has done for you on the cross as he rose from the grave in exchanging your sin-filled life with his sinless life. And if that's the case, someone might say, well, then why would you change? If God loves me as I am, why would I change? Wouldn't you just stay the same way you are? Paul answers that In the process, he gives us three principles that says, no, when you understand the gospel, you understand your new identity in Christ, you allow his grace to grow you. In in a biblical word, he brings up as he wraps up his thought in verse 22, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. The fruit you get, the fruit of his work, of his labor, of his toil, you get the grapes on your table. You get the wine in the bottle. Who went out and picked the wine and fermented it and processed it and bottled it and then brought it? You just go to traders. All that work was his work on your behalf. And yet when it comes to spiritual things, here's the three things we see of his work for your blessing. First, we have to admit that we're spiritually in slavery. We have to admit your spiritual slavery, verses 15 through 16. Second, embracing unity with Jesus and then lastly we live in the unity with Jesus we live in our new identity daily we live in your new identity daily so we see this summary of the gospel that Paul is talking about in the first five chapters if you're just joining us going through Romans he's talking about the fact that God is the creator by grace sent his son Jesus into the world he lived a perfect life free from sin died for sinners rose from the dead and now offers all who believe eternal life and a special place in his kingdom, living life to the fullest with the power of the Holy Spirit. As we admit your spiritual slavery, looking at verses 15 and 16, especially verse 16, don't you know that you, when you offer yourselves to someone to obey them as slaves, to, you're slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience which leads to righteousness. The first half of verse 16 isn't as shocking to the original readers as it seems to us because the reason, if you're with us a few weeks ago, I shared in the first century, if you were facing a lifelong financial debt, you couldn't pay back the loan you took out on the farm, it's an enormous amount of debt. It, it It would render you just helpless for the rest of your life. Well, then you, you wasn't, it was not uncommon for someone to become a slave to American Express or MasterCard, work that debt off for, you, for a few years, and then you're debt-free. Which some of you are like, hey, that might actually be better than doing Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace Envelope. Like, We could just do that for a few years, get out of debt. And that was how it was. And it was, it was called this slavery of five, 10 years. That was the view of slavery. So when we hear the word slavery is a different, Connotation. It was more of a bond servant. A, I owe you this debt. I'm going to be your slave. That's why in Proverbs it says, it says the borrower is slave to the lender. You would get free from debt. This bond servant slave example brings up the reality that there's two categories for people in the world. People who are obeying God and are in absolute unconditional service to God. And people who are spiritually slaves to something else. There's nothing in the middle. There's no alternative to these two ways. And the first commandment brings up the tension. When God says, I am the Lord God, I must be your God. Don't worship anything else as a God. Presenting two options, either worshiping God as the true God or assigning something else, a created thing, as God, the thing you're gonna get your source of significance from. Everyone lives for something. It's the main source of significance and security. And what we live for shapes how we go through life's challenges. So when you're like, great, God saved me, but what did he save you from? He's released you. He's freed you. Now, what, is he, what has he saved you for? So admitting your spiritual slavery is admitting you're living either worshiping God or worshiping something else, getting your identity, your source of meaning, your worth from something else. And that something else is your master. And as we see, there's three tests, three kinds of unreasonable desires that will show you where your spiritual masters are. Anger. If something blocks you from getting a good thing, you get angry. But if something blocks you from an ultimate thing, something you've based your life on, you get like this epic angry. You lose it. And it's amazing when people lose it over their sports losing or their emotional state gets destroyed and and I, you know, as, a, as an athlete, I never got epic angry when I lost, like, ever. Like, there was just, oh, wow, we lost to a rival. Hey, let's go, let's go give him cupcakes I baked for him in case we lost, like that. Anyone else do that? No, like, the way home, it's like my life's over. I hope the bus just drives off the grade and we all die because we just lost too slow. Like, this is, I, how am I going to recover from this? You get epic angry. Your life's over. Fear. If something good in your life is threatened, you're, you're worried, you're concerned, right? If something ultimate in your life is threatened, you're paralyzed by fear. Anxiety grips you and it, it just absorbs every part of you and you're unable to move. You're gripped with this fear and, and you're anxious and you can't think straight and you become succumb and you give in to this alternate reality and that's because you're, you're getting your identity from something that is threatened. And lastly, sadness. If you lose something good, you grieve, you weep. It's terrible. It takes a month, weeks, years. But if you lose something ultimate, you want to throw your life off the bridge. You you want to just commit suicide. You want to end your life. So we have these three. Anger, fear, and sadness. And it really reveals where our identity is coming from. If it's God, then through... Anger. Okay, I'm, I'm bummed this happened, but God's in control. And, and he says, I'll take revenge. If it's fear, you know what? I'm afraid, but I'm, I'm, I fear God more. I'm going to trust him, and he's in control, and I can rest in him. I'm not going to let this anxiety paralyze me. This sadness, I don't feel like I can move on, but I'm going to keep worshiping the Lord and allow him to comfort me. Martin Luther brings up these three and says in his exposition of the Ten Commandments, he points out that first commandment and says, out of all the commandments, you never do anything else wrong in your life. You don't get over angry or over afraid or over depressed. You don't lie. You don't kill. You don't steal. You don't do anything else wrong unless first you have another God. When you think about it, if your God is that job, well, then you, you need to, you're consumed with Working so much and then giving everything and then you lose your job and now you might as well not even go on. If, if, you're, if your God is the neighbor and what they have, then you're gonna be consumed with trying to get what they have or who they're married to. And if your God is having a, a, a happy life, then you're gonna be consumed with trying to get that, but you've committed the first sin. You have another God other than the one true God. You're not worshiping. And if it's all by grace, then why do you God's will, why not do my own will? If you say, why not live any way I want to? It's because you're answering that first lie that that was introduced in the garden. How could a good God be so good and loving and tell you not to eat from that? Really, he's evil and he wants to hurt you and harm you and you can't trust him. So we see right away that first thing God was saying is here's the command, it's gonna go well with you if you just worship me as the one true God and then reveals that reality in our own heart Where if the serpent came to us, it's that same question. Are you going to worship God as one true God? Or or are you going to submit to slavery and expect something or someone else to give you that identity? Admit your spiritual slavery. Second, we see we need to embrace unity with Jesus. If you're going to get the resources Christ gives you to change, you have to realize the scope and the breadth of the cosmic unity you have with Jesus. We see in verses 3 through 4, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He's talking about the baptized. Those that have trusted in Jesus, that have been positioned in Christ, believe that his death on the cross... Burial in the, in the grave and resurrection is what brings new life. So baptism is sort of like a wedding ring where it's easy to fall in love with someone, but then to take the next step and commit to someone. And we see that the, the word united is a strange word. It's actually a horticultural word that means to be grafted in at the roots, not just on the branches or the trunk, but all the way down into the roots. And we see in verse five, you've been united to the past in the future of Jesus Christ. Past is now our past. Jesus' future is now our future. First of all, it says we died in him. So our past is buried with Christ. In Colossians 3, it says another place where Paul's talking about this growth, this sanctification that God's doing in us and through us, where he says you've been raised with Christ. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, that was the honored seat where the, the victor would, would be seated, right? The general coming back from war would be at the right hand of God and set your minds on things above for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So you died in him, you were raised in him, you're seated at the right hand of God in him. What does that mean? What does that mean that that we're in Jesus? We're seated at the right hand of God. To put it this way, imagine a person who's become rich. How did he or she become rich? Well, they became rich through their brilliance, diligence, hard work, and effort. And that rich person then marries a spouse. Well, that spouse didn't become rich through their efforts, but because of their commitment and their unity. So through that legal union, by grace, the one person has done everything in order to bring all this wealth and amass the wealth, and the second person just gets married. That legal union, it's by grace, just like that. And that's the position. But now do you live in poverty? No, you use the resources that you've been given, and you rejoice in that, and you steward that. But yet so many... Christians are like, wow, that's great. God loves me. Man, woe is my life. Poor me. I don't have, what? You have all the power to accomplish His purpose through His Holy Spirit, but we don't understand it because we don't understand Him through His Word. When the Holy Spirit hasn't given you that understanding because we haven't been in the Word. And it's it's the beautiful promise and that gift. And I remember every Christmas, I always wanted gifts that were like, RC cars, or video game systems. And back in the day, they didn't have the internet where you could just download games out of the air. You had to actually buy the system, and then buy the game, and then get the controller. There's always parts, right? Well, my parents didn't really know all the parts. Or maybe they just didn't afford, want to buy all these video games. So I'd get the game, I'd get the system, and it's like, can I get one game? And there was always something that didn't quite work, you know, and the RC car, and the, that was the first thing. As a kid, I got the RC car and all of a sudden it's like, oh, it needs 50 AA batteries. Are you kidding me? 50? They're like, what in the world? And I didn't understand that. So you put all those suckers in there, speaking figuratively, it needed 20, okay? It's not get ridiculous. And then all the energy gets zapped. And sometimes as Christians, we're like, oh, that's a lot. It's effort. It's work. It's. No, the reality is we have the Holy Spirit. The power does not run out. And then back in the day, rechargeable batteries. I'm not even going to go there. Okay, so it's not like the technology. Put it in there and you're like, that was like two seconds of runtime. This is lame. The determining factor in your relationship with God is no longer your past. We get hung up there and we get stunned. We're like, I don't know. I have, a, I have a shady past. I've done some things. Yes, we all have. Look at the church in Corinth and Paul calls them saints. They're so much worse than any of us, trust me. You could test your record up against them, they'll win. It's crazy and that's why they, got in the, they made it to the Bible. God only accepts sinners and bad people because all have sinned and all have done bad things, said, thought, and done things. He only accepts them, no one's perfect. And God now views you through the lens of Christ's accomplishments, delighting in you, seeing you as free from any guilt, condemnation, and he only views you for all the good that Christ has done. And this, this term, palagenesia, originates from the Stoic philosophy signifying this this cyclical rebirth, this cosmos of decay and that eventually gets um, just purged and, and through the fire burnt away. And Jesus doesn't do what a lot of, a lot of wholeness and wholeness will reign. This purging that's usually Translated at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, everyone who's lost houses, brothers, sisters, or fathers or mothers, children, fields, for My sake will receive a hundred times as much, and eternal life. For many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Jesus says there will be a Pelaginesia, pal- just one, where the single point in history is flowing towards where all the sad things will become untrue. Everything will be purged, everything will become new, everything will be this joyful, exuberant dance and fullness and wholeness. And Paul uses the same word in Titus 3, 5 to discuss personal salvation. It initially seems out of place because it's typically this cosmic rebirth, this purging and cleaning and renewal. But Paul's highlighting that upon becoming a Christian, the power See, the battery power is coming back. It wasn't a huge detour. For the future, the power of the future and the ultimate transformative force that will regenerate the entire cosmos and His created is already at work in your life. The entire power to accomplish His purpose for all created things is already at work in your life to transform and restore and renew and bring about you, not just positionally, but progressively looking, thinking, acting, and loving like Christ. So in a day like today, where the entire world is positioning ships and missiles in Israel and other nations are coming against Israel, Jesus said it's gonna happen this way. And scripture said from Daniel, Zechariah, Revelation, it's all building to this point. And Jesus said, we don't know the day or hour, but we know the season. And we know the season. When everyone's ramping up against Israel, and there's like 20-something Arab nations, and there's one Jewish nation, and 22-something Arab nations say, no, the Israel can't exist. God said one thing to do until he finishes preparing our homes for us in heaven, to go and reach people far from God. And we pray for the salvation of the Jews and the Arabs, and we know him. It, and the plumbing was backed up so thanks for hooking me up and that we're good from now like we got it from here God just you can visit on holidays Christmas is a great time to visit we love that you can vi- you're tearing walls down in my house you're tearing a roof off I didn't I'm not okay with that I'm not okay with that and that's because God intends to dwell in you God has his plan and accomplishes his purpose in you that literally as, as you grow there's going to be more things he needs to remove in you Because you need to reflect his boundless power, joy, goodness through the process. Maybe long and at times painful. It's nothing short of divine masterpiece in the making. So we need to expect the changes coming your way that will exceed your wildest expectations. And you'll be immensely grateful for them. And at the outset, you might not understand all that God's going to begin to work in and through you. As your mind and spirit start growing and awakening to the possibilities of, oh, Pastor asked me to go on a mission trip. I thought we were just going to go down to Santa Maria, but here we are in like Ecuador or Asia. And I, I love hearing those stories of, I don't know what I was doing. The pastor said, go. I said, yes. And now I'm here. Like, and I'm so blessed. I thought I was going to come and be a blessing, but I've been the one receiving all the blessings. I didn't know how this worked. Because you first have to admit your spiritual slavery. Then you embrace your identity, your unity with Jesus before you can live your new identity daily. See, when you become a Christian, your old self, your former identity is crucified and gone, and it's replaced with a new identity. So to give you a picture, I think it's, it's perfect. We, we moved, in, and we moved back to the side of the 101 that I, I grew up on, and so oftentimes, you know, I have in my brain some squares, and so I'll, I'll be thinking, okay, I'm taking the kids to school, And I grew up in Tascadero, and so I'm like, okay, I know how to get to the middle school and then the elementary school and then all of a sudden before I know it, the kids are yelling at me, dad, you missed the exit, this isn't the way mom goes, everything's going to fall apart. I'm like, oh my goodness, apparently we know who you're worshiping, you know, comfort, not God, let's worship on God, let me pray for you kids. Like dad, not now for a sermon, that's for Sunday. I'm like, oh, that's right, okay. So I get off and restore everything, you know, it's all renewed, it's all good, got into the school on time, but so often, my old life... The old house I grew up in, I get off of the same exit, I get off from my new house, only I just keep going on curb rail and then I hit Marchant, and then I go up and I pull in at times, my wife's like, where are you going? Like it's late, like we're gonna come back from a date and I'm like, oh, our kids are not at your parents' house. Why are you driving to your parents' house? Why are we parked in front of their house? I'm like I just, this is, the old, this is the old house, this is where I used to live and it's still ingrained in me. It, it, it dies hard. Because the, the new house is on Coromar, you, you get off on Kerberra and you take the first left. But instead I just go straight and then get on Marchant and then boop, before I know it, I'm just in autopilot and there I go, back to the old life. Thankfully, I don't actually stay in that mindset and walk into my parents' house at 10 o'clock. You know, they, they do own guns, so that might not be well for me. Like, who are you doing? Like, oh my goodness, sorry dad, it's the old, yeah, we're going home, we're good. But don't we do that spiritually? All of a sudden, it calls our name. It feels comfortable. We just hit cruise control mentally. And there we are, doing the same old thing. But we have a new identity. We, the old has been crucified. It's dead and gone. We're new creation. So how can we who died still live in sin, he says in verse 2? You've been baptized. The old has washed away. The new has come out of the water. It's a perfect picture of why Believers are baptized and walk in this newness of life. And the transformation requires an active recognition, not a passive mindset in autopilot. It's the acknowledgement of your new identity. You must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God and consciously choose not to let sin rule over you. As a Christian, through the Holy Spirit, you possess all the resources needed for transformation. And it's seen perfectly with Jesus healing a blind man in Mark 8, demonstrates that Christ doesn't leave his work incomplete. He ensures that what he begins, he finishes. He walks up to this blind man and it's kind of gross for some of you that are a little, you know, need your personal space. He, he spits, puts the saliva in the guy's eyes and is like, hey, do you see? And at first you're like, dude, that's gross. And the disciples are probably like, um, COVID Jesus like all the germs. What are you doing? Like we're, this is not okay. Has he gotten a shot? I don't know if he's okay with this like six feet Jesus. Come on You've done miracles before with like you weren't even in the same town. You need to put saliva on his eyes And then the guy's like yeah, I, I can see but the people look like trees And Jesus doesn't do what most American Christians do and go. Hey, I'll pray for you. Okay, it'll be better I'll just pray to God. I'll heal you. I'll be praying for you brother. I got a lunch. I'm gonna I gotta hurry But he's like, okay, and he and he stays with them until the feel the the healing has its full effect. The principle applies to our own sanctification. He he rubs his eyes and then he opens them and he says, "Do you see now?" And he says, "Yes, I can see the people now." Just like the blind man, we can trust that Jesus will bring us to full spiritual wholeness. He's not going to leave us halfway healed. He's not going to leave us seeing people walking around like trees. He's going to stay with us through the whole healing, the whole process. He's active in it with us. But it's a beautiful picture because we don't see the blind guy go, I knew you couldn't do it, loser. He sits with Jesus in that moment. But don't we have the same struggle? Like, oh, when's this healing going to be done? Am I going to even be healed? Instead of like, why am I blind? He's asking, what is God going to do through this? And he's with Jesus, allowing him to bring him to that full healing. On the other hand, we see these don't happen automatically if you've ever failed, failed to change, and you remember, man, I I thought I was good. God's word said I was positionally good, but I'm still struggling, I'm wrestling. The point is, it takes time. The point is to stay close to Jesus. The point is to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, stay close to him and let him do the work in and through you. Knowing it's his work, that he will, he's faithful and just to forgive you of all unrighteousness as you crowd to him and repent of sin, but it's also him who's gonna see the completion of your sanctification, of your growth. And as we close with these three questions that maybe some of you are asking, because you're like, that's cool, I'm glad he got his eyesight back. What about me? What about my diagnosis? What about my relationship? What about my work? I don't even know if I'm going to have a job tomorrow. What about me today? How does this work? Maybe you're wondering. Cool, I I love the idea of not being stunted, but how do I grow? Why does it take so long? And why is that so hard? And as we've put up a wheel in the past to, to show your spiritual growth that mirrors a physical it's interesting as we look at the different physical and emotional growth patterns and really how it takes so long. And yet the, the intent work that needs to be done and God knows it all because he created it, he sustained it. So first question, how does that, how does it work? And St. Augustine, to put it mildly, is a great example for us. Before he was a Christian, he had a problem with sexual self-control. And after he became a Christian, one day he was walking along and one of his old mistresses showed up and came after him. And, and she was one of the people that he particularly liked. And, and when they would have their flings and do stuff, it'd be weeks on end. It, was, it, makes, it makes Hugh Hefner look like a kindergartner, you know, just having ideas. It, it, like St. Augustine in that culture was just, in, just prolific. And she came after him and, and she said, no, Augustine, you know me. And pulled him aside and got in his face and he's like, no, thank you very much, kindly, thank you, but no, it's, it's good to see you, but no. And she realized, well, maybe he didn't, maybe he didn't recognize me. So she runs her back in front of him and is like, no, it's me, remember me? And, and she, she said, Augustine, it's I. And Augustine turned around and smiled and said, yes, I know, but it is not I. She said, it's me, Augustine. And he said again, yes, I know, it's not me. And there's a cool thing that that the Gen Z, the younger generation says is, he's him. And it's like, he's him. And so the older generation might be like, what is that? I thought about that. And I'm like, oh, well, Augustine is saying, no, I know you think that I'm him, but I'm not him. I'm not him. He's dead. Augustine's dead with Christ. And then I rose with Christ. And now I'm a new creation. Jesus is him. Jesus is the one who saved me, who redeemed me. He bought me with a price. I was joined in his death, burial, and now resurrection. Now the guy you see is a new creation. I don't have the same affection towards you. I see you. I know what we used to do. But we're not doing that anymore. I'm not him. And it's a perfect picture because the, the transformation illustration that we see in Augustine's encounter exemplifies that, it, that when he became a Christian... Your old desires, your old house. Yeah, I know the way to the old house. We're not going there. I have a new house, a new life in Christ. Here's where my new house resides. The old spiritual masters are deleted. There's no affection towards them. Yes, I acknowledge who they were once, but they don't have any hold on me anymore. So why does it take so long to get there? A lot of Christians struggle with the disconnect between their new identity in Christ and their old Patterns of behavior, like a, a group that was emancipated from slavery, who still act like they're in bondage due to ingrained fear and habits. The process of fully realizing and living out the new identity as freed slaves can take a long time and requires a huge internal shift and in understanding. That's why we talk a lot about coming consistently on Sundays, being a part of the family. And then getting in a life group or Bible study to to grow because it's a lot of that undoing. No, that's who you once were. You're not that way anymore. You're positionally in Christ and you have access to the power of God in you to grow you. And it's his work in and through you. He's going to see it through. The key lies in grasping and living in light of the transformed identity. And many people who've received Jesus and embraced the new identity find that years pass without significant growth. And it's because they're, they're content being positionally set free, but then they live out as if they're still slaves to sin. And they give room to sin. And they go, well, this is a morally acceptable sin, so I'll do that. And then demons and the enemy comes in, and then they have more hold on you that you don't, they don't have any right to. They can leave, they have to leave in the power of Jesus' name, but if you're willingly living in sin, then you're, you're unhealthy. And that's where that stunted growth becomes a reality. They haven't fully grasped their new identity in Christ. And so it's so hard because Romans 6, 17 says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves in sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because your natural limitations for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So, in Paul's words, I'm speaking in human terms, because your natural limitations. Super gracious way to say you're not as smart as I am. Also, um, you're just kind of simple-minded, and it's hard. That's why I keep using illustrations and and to think about it this way that. Put in Christ over your heart in Christ, Brandon is sanctified in Christ, John, in Christ, and put your name there. you're in Christ, you're no longer in the world or looking for the world to to satisfy you or your career, your relationships. It's in Christ you give your members for righteousness. and he talks about leading to sanctification, and at the end he wraps up and says. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. The message here is that many people fear offering themselves fully to God because they believe he will abuse them. That lie was the same lie the serpent came to Eve. Why would you listen to God? He told you you can't eat from the fruit. What a jerk. He'll abuse you. Instead, they often enslave themselves to pursuits like a career, love, and more, even though these don't provide true freedom, however, the gospel and the selfless love of Jesus should inspire us to give ourselves to the one master who offers himself for us. He's the source of perfect freedom and transformation. And there's an essay I, I read called The Three Seasons, and there's uh, a woman in there after the Vietnam War in the 70s, is where it's, it's set, and there's a motorcycle driver and, and doing races and there's there's a woman in in poverty who's selling her body trying to trying to get out of poverty through prostitution and she's trying to sleep her way out of her plight and every night she gets to stay in a in a hotel room for a few hours and then has to leave and there's this tension that's brought up that man i want to get out of this poverty and i want to live that life that people that get to stay in the hotel overnight do and so one day this motor motorcycle Ryder right, wins all the money. And there's that relational tension through the, the essay and wins this huge prize of money and he takes it and he, and he tells the woman, hey, I wanna see you tonight. I got this hotel room. And so she goes there thinking she's gonna turn on her trick or whatever. And he's like, hey, I, I spent all the winnings on this hotel room for you. I just want you to have a good meal and, and a good night's sleep in the hotel room. I'll see you tomorrow. And she wakes up the next day and something snaps in her, she finds that she can't go back to her old job of prostitution. She, she's experienced for the first time someone using their power and their resources rather than to use her. She gets a new sense of identity and dignity and she's not the same person that she, she's changed by that transforming grace and selfless love. And we think about that that image jesus had all the power in the world and he looks down at us and sees us trapped in things that we think are going to free us or be enjoyable for us but really they're enslaving us and what does he do paul tells us in philippians 2 he empties himself to become a servant and mark 10 says i came not to be served but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many and john 13 shows the humility of a disciple, a humble servant, committed, fully devoted to following Jesus. He takes off his garments to wash the feet, the job of a servant. He doesn't just say, I came to serve, he does serve us. He laid aside the infinite amount of praise and resources and purchased, not just at the cost of money, but the cost of his life, a room. He purchased a room in the only place our hearts can truly find rest, and that's in his father's house. He's preparing a place for you if you believe and receive him as your Lord and Savior. He denied himself to love us. And if that woman in the story was transformed by the knowledge of this motorcycle selfless love, how much more will we be able to say like Augustine to the spiritual masters that are grasping at us, calling our name, that feel like home, that feel like That's what I used to do. And that feels good. We can say like Augustine, it's not me. Jesus is him. He's him. He's the one who set me free. It's not me. The new life I live, I live for Jesus. Now, why wouldn't you want to offer yourself? If you can only have one of two masters, why wouldn't you offer yourself to the master of the universe? Who's offered himself for you? He's already paid the price. Trust in Him. Give yourself to Him because when you give yourself to your career or to relationships, your career is never going to die for you. If you don't give everything to your career, the moment you step out, the career is just going to take the next resume and put the next person in your place. Give yourself to Jesus. Trust in Him and receive that He's paid the debt, positioned you in Him, and He's already transferred all of His riches, His power to accomplish His purpose in you. By God's grace, we can receive that and let Him transform us. It's His work, and it's His service alone that brings perfect freedom. So as we close, I want you to think less about yourself and think more about Christ, as we talked about last week, boasting in Christ. Because we're in Christ, the fruit that we get leads to sanctification, and it's end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for seeing us, saving us. Lord, may we see you, Jesus. Believe that we are truly in you, made new by the power of of your blood that forgives our sin and the power of your spirit that raised Jesus to new life again, that would raise us to new life. And that simple gospel that's nowhere else heard or found that the God who created a creation that ran away from you, that declared war against you, rebelled against you, that you would graft us back into the roots, that you would save us, pay the price, not just financially, but with your son's life who lived a perfect, sinless life in our place that we might be restored and redeemed, adopted back into your family, receiving all the inheritance and position of your sons and daughters. For those who have yet to believe, may they believe and receive salvation today. And may they commit to following you, fully devoted to following you, that we would see baptisms come as they obey you. Lord, and we pray for those who are, who are believing again being redeemed again and and growing in that knowledge we thank you and we pray that we we'd be able to celebrate and hear that god at work story of how you're strengthening their belief and they can go and share the hope they have with others as we are in christ experiencing the love that you filled us with that we could love others with that love in jesus name amen